Alright folks, so I'm doing things a little bit differently today. I wanted to get this out a little faster. Um, I've been thinking on this particular moment just about the history of the rapture of the church and pre-trib theory, right? So a lot of folks, I've come up against a lot of discussion about how the pre-trib rapture wasn't a thing until the 1800s. That's when this fellow by the name of Darby really sensationalized it and everybody's like, it's an escape theory, it's not biblically sound, so on and so forth. Um, so essentially I did a little bit of digging and found two amazing articles from some researchers in pre-trib theory and the history of the rapture um, who have compiled a wonderful list of historical documents that I'm going to go through with you here today. Um, and we're just going to kind of go through, take excerpts out from their, from their um, written articles. And I will link you guys so that you can go and read those on your own time. Um, but this is going to be, I think, a, a pretty fantastic resource. I know that I found it very interesting. So, um, But anyhow, we're just going to jump right in. So in terms of the rapture, I am, if you have been following me for any period of time, you know that I am a pre-tribulation rapture person. I am premillennial. So essentially that means that I believe Jesus is coming to get the church before the tribulation happens, before the Antichrist is revealed. And we read about this in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and, and uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, so anyhow, we meet Jesus in the clouds. And we go and spend seven years approximately with him in heaven before we return to earth. And that is when he comes back to make his second coming at the Mount of Olives, where he then goes out to defeat the Antichrist. Um, he binds Satan for a thousand years and he sets up his millennial reign out of Jerusalem. Um, and so, again, that's kind of what I mean by or sorry, um, a premillennial theory. So essentially that Jesus has not yet set up that kingdom here on earth, but that is something that it will happen in the future. So a lot of folks argue about the validity of the term rapture. And I want to point out here that the original word, we have to always go back to the language that the texts were originally written in. So when we're looking at First and Second Thessalonians, we're looking at First Corinthians 15, we're looking at any of these main rapture um, theological texts, we have to go back to the original Greek manuscript. And the term that is used to describe the catching away of the saints up to Jesus in the clouds is the term harpazo. Okay, so when you translate from the Greek text to the Latin Bible, which is what the Catholic Church used for many, many years, um, you get the word from harpazo, it translates to rapturo or rapture. That's where we have adopted using the word rapture, but technically you could call it being harpazoed out or caught away. It really doesn't matter. It's the same word. It's in the Bible. Just because the term rapture doesn't show up doesn't mean that you discard the whole theory. That's just not, <laughs> not handling this well. Um, the other concept that folks have that they I often hear brought up is the whole aspect that the rapture is... It was only popularized, or the pre-trib theory of the rapture was only popularized um, and made into this situation, this deal, by the 1800s by a fellow by the name of Darby. And we're going to, I'm going to show you guys some information today that essentially disproves that um, by pulling out stuff from the first all the way to the 18th century, showing that folks have actually subscribed to this concept for quite a long time. Um, and that's where we're going to jump into right now. So... The first, I'm going to pull some notes that I've taken and some 
quotes from Th Thomas D. Ice's article. You can look it up. It's called A Brief History of the Rapture. It was published by Liberty University in 2009. And this is what I'm going to read. So he, he points out that there was a sermon written in the 4th to 6th century titled The Last Times, the Antichrist, and the End of the World. Now, this sermon is the product of somebody whom a lot of scholars call Pseudo-Ephraim. By the term pseudo, it simply means that there were a couple different Ephraims. We don't know which one wrote the bulk of this um, particular sermon. But anyhow, the quote from this sermon, and now remember, guys, this is 400 to 600 AD, okay, or CE, Common Era, as we call it today. Um, so the, the quote from this sermon reads as follows. It says, Why therefore do we not reject every care of earthly actions and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Christ, so that he may draw us from the confusion which overwhelms all the world? For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Now, the later second coming of Christ, this is end quote, sorry, by the way, the later second coming of Christ to the earth with the saints is mentioned at the end of his sermon. So this makes it very clear that the writer is not speaking about the second coming of Christ in this particular excerpt, but that he is speaking about a rapture event where Jesus is in the clouds, like Paul talks about in the letters to the Thessalonians. Now, this author, so um, Thomas Ice, points out, he says that this sentiment was stamped out by the amillennialism or amillennialism preached by Origen and Augustine in the 5th century AD. These guys really did damage to the concept of a pre-trib rapture. Nevertheless, pre-trib Rapture theology remained underground, attracting sects such as the Albigenses, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, the Lombards, and the Waldenses. The interesting thing is that these guys are what you would consider the Protestant groups of today. They were anti-Catholic church. They didn't agree with the fact that the Catholic church was controlling the beliefs of the culture at the time. And because of that, the Catholic church destroyed most of what we know regarding their beliefs. So they, because they were essentially considered heretical, you'll find that most of these groups would be supported by believers today in terms of what they believe with regards to, you know, the sovereignty of God and the movement of the Holy Spirit and the fact that you don't have to be a priest to receive, you know, to go to God for forgiveness. You don't have to go to a priest. You can go to God directly. Those were considered heretical things back in the day. So no wonder if they believed, and we know that they believed, in um, these underground pre-trib rapture theories, kind of makes you wonder why was this concept so hated by the church at the time? Perhaps because we know that that particular body of religious leaders was had that religious spirit, right? And so Satan being in control of a large majority of what was going on within the Catholic Church at the time, because let's face it, guys, it was not biblical. You look at what the Catholic Church did um, throughout the, the different centuries. They persecuted people who were passionate about Jesus. It, it was a bad scene. And so if Satan is controlling those religious leaders, how much more is he going to try and stamp out theology that actually points to Jesus, points to our hope in Christ? Okay, so let's move on. So um, 
so Thomas Ice points out, he says that there is one brother Dolcino who did ho hold some form of pre-tribulationism in the year 1304. So we have records for his ideology. Um, Francis Gummerlach advocates for Brother Dolcino, saying in his book that, and I quote, the Dolcinites held to a pre-tribulation rapture theory similar to that in modern dispensationalism, unquote. So the reason he believed that Brother Dolcino taught pre-tribulation is found in the following statement, and this one's a nice big one. Here we go. So I quote, Again, Dolcino believed and preached and taught that within those three years, Dolcino himself and his followers will preach the coming of the Antichrist, and that the Antichrist was coming into this world within the bounds of the said three and a half years, and after he had come that he, Dolcino, and his followers would be transferred into paradise, in which are Enoch and Elijah, and in this way they will be preserved, unharmed from the persecution of the Antichrist." And that then Enoch and Elijah themselves would descend on the earth for the purpose of preaching against Antichrist. Then they would be killed by him or by his servants. And thus Antichrist would reign for a long time. But when the Antichrist is dead, Dolcino himself, who would then be the Holy Pope, and his preserved followers will descend on the earth and will preach the right faith of Christ to all and will convert those who will be living then to the true faith of Jesus Christ. Unquote. Now, obviously, that is, you know, a little bit skewed when it comes to some biblical concepts. We know that um, the tribulation period does not last three and a half years. It is a total of about seven years, according to Daniel. Um, and we also know that when Jesus comes back, it is for the salvation of Israel, right? So there's, I mean, there's some truth there. There's a little bit mixed up, but it kind of goes to show, it just pretty much provides more evidence for the fact that this concept of a pre-tribulation or a, even in this case, might even be more of a mid-tribulation rapture, wasn't a belief that had occurred long before the 1800s and long before Darby had even brought it into um, the public eye. So now uh, Thomas Ice goes on to talk about the Reformation Church. And he points out that after a thousand years of suppression, premillennialism was revived by the late 1500s, early 1600s, it began to return as a factor within mainstream Protestantism. Premillennial interpreters began to abound. There really was a, a large wave of prophecy interpretation that happened at this time that was really kind of clamped down on previous to this. Um, and then again, because of this, we also get the development of sub-issues like the rapture. So Paul Benware notes here in a quote, he says, Peter Giroux, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, um, but Peter Giroux in his book, Approaching Deliverance of the Church from 1687, taught that Christ would be coming in the air to rapture the saints and return to heaven before the battle of Armageddon. He spoke of a secret rapture prior to his coming in glory and judgment at Armageddon. Philip Doddridge's commentary on the New Testament, 1738, and John Gill's commentary on the New Testament from 1748 both use the term rapture and speak of it as imminent. It is clear that these men believed that this coming will precede Christ's descent to earth and the time of judgment. The purpose was to preserve believers from the time of judgment. James McKnight, 1763, and Thomas Scott, 1792, taught that the righteous will be carried to heaven where they will be secured until the time of judgment is over, unquote. So again, that was a quote from Paul Benware. Um, and 
clearly all of this stuff is happening pre-1800s. So again, this just completely debunks the whole concept that Darby came up with the rapture theory, um, the pre-trib rapture theory. Okay, so the clearest reference to a pre-trib rapture, if not the most developed system before Darby, comes from Baptist Morgan Edwards, who founded the Ivy League school Brown University. He saw a distinct rapture approximately three and a half years before the start of the millennium. The discovery of Edwards, who wrote about his pre-trib um, beliefs in 1744, he later published them in 1788. This is hard to dismiss. Okay, and so the quote here from his writing is... Um, uh, he says, the distance between the first and second resurrection will be somewhat more than a thousand years. And then he is quoted, this is Baptist Morgan Edwards, he is quoted saying, I say somewhat more because the dead saints will be raised and the living changed at Christ appearing in the air. First Thessalonians, uh, verse 17 there, chapter, I'm trying to read Roman numerals here. I think that's chapter four, verse 17. Um, Okay, so because the dead saints will be raised and the living changed at Christ appearing in the air, and this will be about three years and a half before the millennium, as we shall see hereafter. But will he and they abide in the air at that time? No, they will ascend to paradise or to some one of those many, quote, mansions in the Father's house and disappear during the foresaid period of time. The design of this retreat and disappearing will be to judge the risen and changed saints for, quote, now the time to come that is come that judgment must begin, and that will be at the house of God. And that is a quote from 1 Peter. So that is the end of Paul Morgan's statement here. Um, or sorry, Morgan Edwards' statement uh, regarding the rapture. So this is all thanks to Thomas Ice's article, A Brief History of the Rapture. Again, I'll link that down below in the description for you guys. So we have pretty clear evidence, um, but I want to give you some more. And what I found next is amazing. So this is um, just some quotes that I've taken from an associate professor of histological, sorry, historical theology. His name is James F. Stitzinger, and his article is titled The Rapture in 20 Centuries of Biblical Interpretation. So first we're going to start with the early fathers. Um, and here he says, a cursory examination of the early church fathers reveals that they were predominantly premillennialists or chiists. And I need to look that word up. <laughs> um, okay, so clear examples are in the writing of Barnabas, circa 100 to 150 CE, common era, so AD. For those of you who need to catch up on that history change, um, we have Papias circa 60 to 130 CE, Justin Martyr from 110 to 165, Irenaeus from 120 to 202, Tertullian from 145 to 220, Hippol Hippol uh, <laughs> Hippolytus, oh boy, my Greek names are a little bit rough here. So Hippolytus um, from 185 to 236 CE, Cyprian from 200 to 250, and Lacantius from 260 to 330. These fellows make this understanding impossible to challenge successfully. All of these fellows, all of these guys, talked about a premillennial version of, um, of Jesus' return, right? They believed that they were living in the years before he came back. Because at the time, again, remember, 
there was a shift based off of the Catholic Church in the centuries to follow a shift towards amillennialism or the fact that they were either living in the era of Christ's reign or that it had already happened. Um, okay, so here uh, James Stitzinger points out, here's our first fellow. So Clement of Rome um, from 90 to 100 CE, Clement wrote the following, quote, of a truth, soon and suddenly shall his will be accomplished, as the scripture also bears witness, saying, Speedily he will come and will not tarry, and the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple, even the Holy One for whom you look. Let us therefore earnestly strive to be found in the number of those that wait for him, in order that we may share in his promised gifts. Clement quotes, um, and that's unquote, sorry, Clement quotes Habakkuk 2.3 and Malachi 3.1 in a clear statement of the imminence of Jesus' return. Ignatius of Antioch from 98 to 117 CE wrote the following, quote, The last times are come upon us. Let us therefore be of reverent spirit and fear the long-suffering of God, lest we despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance. Unquote. On the basis of Romans 2.4, Ignatius continues and says, quote, For let us either fear the wrath to come, or let us love the present joy in the life that is now, and let our present and true joy be only this, to be found in Christ Jesus that we may truly live, unquote. And Ignatius also wrote to Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, saying, quote, Be watchful, possessing a sleepless spirit, and be evermore becoming more zealous than what thou art. Weigh carefully the times, look for him who is above all time, eternal and invisible, yet who became visible for our sakes. So again, there's this discussion of the imminent return of Jesus. They believed he was coming. They believed that he had yet to begin his reign on earth. They were not amillennialists. They were premillennialists. Okay, Um. next we have the Didach. I think that's how you pronounce it. The Didach in uh, 100 to 160 CE. Um, the final chapter of the Didach provides one of the clearest and comprehensive statements on imminency. And I quote, Be watchful for your life, let your lamps not be quenched and your loins not ungirded, but be ye ready, for ye know not the hour in which our Lord cometh. Unquote. In the same paragraph, the author urges, quote, Gather yourselves together frequently, unquote, in the light of the imminence of the Lord's return. Then he speaks of the appearance of the world deceiver, which the context indicates is the Antichrist and the persecution associated with his coming. Next, we've got a fellow by the name of Barnabas. So Barnabas, from 117 to 138 CE, um, he has an epistle, and the epistle of Barnabas reflects a similar view of imminency when it states, quote, For the day is at hand on which all things shall perish with the evil one. The Lord is near and his reward, unquote. So again, a focus on the imminency of Jesus' coming. Um, next, we've got the shepherd of Hermas from 1996 to 150 CE. The theme of imminency continues in the Shepherd of Hermas as the church is compared to a tower, and I quote, Let us go away, and after two days let us come and clean these stones and put them into the building, for all things round the tower must be made clear, lest haply the, the master come suddenly and find the circuit dirty, and he be wroth, angry. And so these stones shall not go to the building of the tower, and I shall appear to be careless in my master's sight, unquote. Again, we're not seeing in these particularly any discussion of a pre-trib theory. What we're seeing is a discussion of a premillennial theory. 
All right. Um, so in reference to these early church beliefs, uh, a fellow by the name of Kruchtfeld rightly concludes saying this view of the fathers on imminency and in some references to escaping the time of tribulation constitute what may be turned to quote Erickson seeds from which the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture could be developed. Had it not been for the drought in sound exegesis brought on by the Alexandrian allegorism and later by Augustine, one wonders what kind of crop those seeds might have yielded long before J.N. Darby and the 19th century. So here we get the introduction of this issue uh, with exegesis. We have a drought coming and this was, this would occur during the medieval church era. So the period between Augustine and the Renaissance was largely dominated by Augustine's understanding of the church and his spiritualization of the millennium of the millennium as the reign of Christ in the saints. There were only sporadic discussions here and there of a literal and future millennium. This made examples of pre-tribulationalism very rare. All right, so medieval scholar Dorothy Abrahamsey further explains the situation. She notes, quote, Augustine had declared that the revelation of John was to be interpreted symbolically rather than literally, and for most of the Middle Ages, church councils and theologians considered only abstract eschatology to be acceptable speculation, unquote. Now, um, Dorothy here, she goes on to observe, quote, Since the 19th century, however, historians have recognized that literal apocalypses did continue to circulate in the medieval world and that they played a fundamental role in the creation of important strains of thought and legend, unquote. Consistent with this conclusion, several important instances of pre-tribulational thought have come to light in recent years as we dig into these manuscripts and, and these ancient texts. So, first we've got Ephraim of Nisibi. Oh, I definitely pronounced that wrong. Um, anyhow, we're just going to call him Ephraim. Now, I believe this is, yes, this is the same Ephraim that we talked about previously. Um, again, living somewhere in the years 306 to 373 CE. And uh, what, one second here, let me scroll back to the beginning. Oopsies, I am far down. Uh, okay, James, I keep forgetting the fellow's name. All right, so James um, here, the writer of this article, he says that Ephraim was a, an extremely important and prolific writer, also known as Pseudo-Ephraim. So we've met this guy before. He was a major theologian of the early Eastern or Byzantine church. His important sermon, as we've seen already on The Last Times, The Antichrist and the End of the World, circa like 373 CE, um, is preserved in four Latin manuscripts and is ascribed to St. Ephraim or possibly to St. Isidore. If it's not written by Ephraim, it is written by one who is greatly influenced by him. So this pseudo-Ephraim sermon declares the following. I'll quote this again just to kind of refresh our memory. So quote, all the saints and the elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation which is to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins, unquote. Remember, guys, this was written in the 300s. This is like over a thousand years before Darby even existed, all right? Like even more, 1500 years before Darby existed, something like that, right? A long time, okay? So um, James goes on to say, he says, Alexander offers an insightful comment on these words when he says, 
Quote, this author, however, mentions another measure taken by God in order to alleviate the period of tribulation for his saints and for the elect. Unquote. In this sermon, Pseudo-Ephraim develops an elaborate biblical eschatology, including a distinction between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. It describes the imminent rapture, followed by a three and a half years of great tribulation under the rule of the Antichrist, followed by the coming of Jesus, the defeat of the Antichrist, and the eternal state, or the millennium reign. His view includes a parenthesis between the fulfillment of Daniel's 69 weeks and his 70th week in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. Pseudo-Ephraim describes the rapture that precedes the tribulation as imminent or overhanging. Okay, so again, that is, honestly, I could just leave it right there. We'd be happy. Go home. We're done. <laughs> um, but there's more. There's more evidence. Okay, so the next one is Codex Amnitudir. Uh, how do I pronounce this name? Um, Amiatinus. Amiatinus. We're just going to go Codex. Okay. Uh, so this is from the year 690 to 716 CE. This significant Latin manuscript from England was commissioned by Abbot Kelfrid of the monasteries of Jarrow and Wearmouth in Northumberland. Kelfrid intended to give it to the Pope as a gift, but died on his way to see him. It was produced during the era of the commentaries of the Venerable Bede, who was also a monk at Jarrow and whose works were heavily influenced by Jerome's Vulgate. In the title to Psalm 22, which is Psalm 23 in the Vulgate, the following appears, quote, Psalm of David, the voice of the church after being raptured. Hmm. Unquote. The Latin phrase post-raptismum, um, contains a verb from the root rapio, which can mean either to snatch or hurry away, to plunder or take by assault. This title is not carried over from Jerome's Vulgate and thus is likely the product of the Jaro Monastery. Interesting. A history of the period of Kilfren's life presents no evidence of invasion or suffering as if the title were inserted for comfort in light of a difficult situation or condition in the church. In contrast, Kelfred writes of Christ's future sudden return and the resurrection of the believer, and I quote, We show that we rejoice in the most certain hope of our own resurrection, which we believe will take place on the Lord's day, unquote. Though not conclusive and still in need of further study, it appears that this codex presents another example of pre-tribulational thought in the Middle Ages. Again, it's slightly inconclusive, um, but it appears that that was something that was coming out of that Gerald Monastery, that thought process. Very interesting indeed. And again, that is from the 600s, 700s, late 600s, early 700s. Next, we've already talked about this fellow, Brother Dolcino from 1307, um, and the author of this article that I'm, I'm describing here, he writes that a recent study of the 14th century text, The History of Brother Dolcino, composed in 1316 by an anonymous source, reveals another important pre-tribulational passage. As leader of the Apostolic Brethren in Northern Italy, Brother Dolcino led his people through times of tremendous papal persecution. One of the group wrote the following astonished words, astonishing words, and we've already kind of read this, right, about how the Antichrist is going to come within about three and a half years, um, and then after he had come, the followers, the people who 
were following Dolcino, who believed in Jesus, were looking for his coming, would be transferred into paradise where Enoch and Elijah were, and they would be preserved unharmed from the persecution of the Antichrist. So this appears to be a bit of a mid-tribulation belief. All right. Um, now we know Dolcino and his followers retreated into the mountains of northern Italy to await their removal at the appearance of the Antichrist. And unfortunately, him and his followers were killed by a papal crusade in 1306. But the movement lasted into the 15th century. Very interesting. Again, that was the 1300s. Now let's talk about the Reformation era. And this should come as an, ex uh, you know, just a fun fact because it's just after Reformation Day, right? October 31st. We're now into November. Um, okay, so the Reformation era. The Reformation is in general um, bleak with regard to prophetic teaching. It's evidenced by the lack of writings and commentaries on any of the prophetic books. The strongest statements concerning imminency during this period actually come from Anabaptists, known as the Toffer, who drew their theology from the scriptures more than other groups that bore the name Anabaptist. One such learned man was Balthazar Hubmeier, who after rebuking his radical Chialistic contemporaries then says, and I quote, although Christ gave us many signs whereby we can tell how near at hand the day of his coming is, nevertheless, no one but God knows the exact day. Take heed, watch and pray, for you know neither the day, either the day or the hour, the judge is already standing at the door, unquote. Martin Luther and John Calvin also made similar statements concerning imminency. Calvin, when commenting on Zechariah and Malachi, wrote, quote, Whenever the day of the Lord is mentioned in scripture, let us know that God is bound by no laws, that he should hasten his work according to our hasty wishes, but the specific time is in his own power and at his own will, unquote. Commenting on Christ's teachings in the gospel, he writes, quote, Jesus wishes the disciples to be uncertain as to his coming, but to prepare to expect him every moment, unquote. Truly, the Lord's return was one of the great undeveloped themes of the Reformation era. We know that the Catholic Church was really trying to kind of crush down this free thinking within um, and this whole concept of the Reformation. There was a huge outbreak of persecution um, of the Protestants at this period. But let's move up the modern period up to Darby, right? Just pre-Darby era. Okay, so the modern period is usually understood as beginning in 1648 with the final acceptance of the Protestant Reformation at the Peace of Westphalia. This period saw the rebirth of premillennialism for at least three important reasons. First, due to the influence of Renaissance humanism, the reformers went back to the investigation of original written sources by the fathers and the scriptures. This gave them access to fresh and accurate Greek texts, uncorrupted by the Vulgate traditions. It also exposed them to new editions of the early fathers, including distinct premillennial teaching of Arrhenius. Now, Arrhenius was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp, again, was a disciple of John the Apostle. In fact, it is suggested that Arrhenius probably met Paul at one, or sorry, John, not, not Paul, Apostle John at one time. Um, okay, point number two, much of the allegorical hermeneutic that dominated the medieval period was repudiated. Calvin particularly reintroduced exegetical exposition back into the church. Um, and then finally, point three here is many reformers contacted Jewish sources and had learned Hebrew. This moved many of the reformers to take passages concerning Israel more historically rather than continuing to take them allegorically. 
Now this led to more historical or realized eschatological positions among the reformers. Future interpretations, including premillennialism, began to be more prominent in the church as noted earlier. And one of the big things with premillennialism, uh, the theory behind this, is the focus on Israel as still having a critical and important role in biblical in the biblical future that has yet to unfold. So many people today, unfortunately, believe in um, they believe in a cessation of Israel, so that the church is actually now considered Israel, and that is false teaching. Um, Israel is just as important today to God as she was back in the Old Testament, as she was in the prophetic era of Isaiah and Jeremiah. She is still in prophecy, and the Lord has still promises to fulfill to the nation of Israel as a whole. The church does not replace Israel. Okay, so that being said, we go on to continue through this article where the writer says, this more recent focus on premillennial thought in the late 1500s and early 1600s is not surprising. James Orr makes an astute observation concerning the way various doctrines have been the focus of interest and development at various periods of time. He writes, quote, The articulation of the system of dogma in textbooks is the very articulation of the system of dogma in its development in history, unquote. Theological articulation moves from prolegom... Oh, my dear. How do I pronounce this word? From prolegomena to theology proper, <laughs> to anthropology, to Christology, to soteriology, and finally to eschatology as the last major doctrine to be clarified. If you want to know the difference between those, let's see, two, four, six different um, attempt theological articulations, you can rewind the audio and check them out. Um, I I think that would be an actually an interesting thing to look into. But anyhow, let's continue on. Um, so there's these different articulations, these different doctrines. Finally, we get the development of eschatology. Now, Orr speaks of law and reason underlying this development with the law having both a logical and historical development. It is very significant that God in his providence brought the church a rich development of eschatology. The following is a brief survey of pre-tribulational thinking that occurs in this period. Now let's take a look. We've got a bunch of fellows to go through. So first we've got Joseph Mead. He was from 1586 to 1638 CE. Now Mead is considered the father of English premillennialism, having written Clavis Apocalyptica, which is uh, defined as the key of the revelation in 1627, in which, quote, he attempted to construct an outline of the apocalypse based solely upon internal considerations. In this interpretation, he advocated premillennialism in such a scholarly way that this work continued to influence eschatological interpretation for centuries. All right. Again, remember that prior to this Reformation period, this Protestant, this development of Protestant thinking within the church, the Catholic body overseeing much of the outpouring of um, theology to the people, eschatology to the people, they believed in a very symbolic apocalypse. They did not believe, either they believed that it was, it had already happened back in 70 CE, right, with the destruction of the temple, or they believed that it was, it was uh, very symbolic and it could not be applied to the future, but that it had, it was happening and that everybody experienced it. It was very much kind of this watered-down version of what scripture actually teaches. So Joseph Mead was a very key player in um, outlining what was going to happen during the tribulation. 
Okay, next we have Increase Mather. Increase Mather was living from 1639 to 1723 CE. Now, this theologian was the president of Harvard College in 1685. He was a significant American Puritan. Concerning the future coming of Christ, he wrote that the saints would, quote, be caught up into the air, unquote, beforehand, thereby escaping the final conflagration. So he also believed in a pre-tribulational or pre-wrath rapture. Next, we've got Peter Girio, who I believe we've already discussed this fellow, but let's talk again. So again, he's from 1637 to 1713 CE. He was a prominent theologian and apologist in the French Reformed Church, came to believe that Calvinists would be restored to France because of his interpretation of the prophecies of the apocalypse. In his work, Approaching Deliverance of the Church, from 1687, he taught that, quote, Christ would come in the air to rapture the saints and return to heaven before the battle of Armageddon. He spoke of a secret rapture prior to his coming in glory and judgment at Armageddon, unquote. So again, talking about the fact that Jesus is coming for the church, um, but before before the Battle of Armageddon, which honestly, if you look at it, could put his interpretation of the rapture anywhere from pre to mid-trib, right? Okay, next we've got John Gill from 1697 to 1771. John Gill was a profound scholar, a Calvinist theologian, and a Baptist minister at Horsley Downs Southwark for over 50 years. He published an, his, an exposition of the New Testament in three volumes between 1746 to 48. And his commentary on 1 Thessalonians 4.15, he wrote, quote, the apostle having something new and extraordinary to deliver concerning the coming of Christ, the first resurrection, of the resurrection of the saints, the change of the living saints, and the rapture both of the raised and living in the clouds to meet Christ in the air, expresses itself in this manner. The dead saints will rise before the living ones are changed, and both will be caught up together to meet the Lord. Unquote. Now concerning 1 Thessalonians 4.17, he comments, quote, Suddenly, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and with force and power, by the power of Christ, and by the ministry and means of the holy angels, and to which rapture will contribute the agility with the sorry, which the bodies of the of both the raised and changed saints will have, and the rapture of the living saints will be together with them, with the dead in Christ that will then be raised, so that the one will not prevent the other, or the one be sooner with Christ than the other, but one being raised and the other changed, they'll be joined in one company and general assembly, and be wrapped up together in the clouds, the same clouds perhaps in which Christ will come, will be let down to take them up, unquote. So again, this fellow here, John Gill, from this, you know, early 1700s, late 1600s, also believed in a rapture, a physical rapture of the church up to meet Christ in the air. Um, as Jeffrey observes, there is some ambiguity in Dr. Gill's 1748 teaching of the timing and sequence of the prophetic events, yet Jeffrey notes that many important conclusions are made. This includes, first, the Lord will descend in the air. Second, the saints will be raptured in the air to meet him. Third, Christ will preserve the saints with him until the general conflagration and burning of the world is over. And finally, the saints will reign with Christ for a thousand years. All of that sounds pretty heavy in terms of pre-trib. 
Again, similar pre-tribulational views can be found in commentaries by Philip Doddridge, 1702 to 1751, James McKnight, 1721 to 1800, and Thomas Scott, 1747 to 1821. Okay, and then next we've got Morgan Edwards from 1722 to 1795. Now, Morgan Edwards, I believe we've already talked about him. Um, he was a Baptist preacher, evangelist, historian, and educator, having founded Rhode Island College or Brown University. During his student days at Bristol Baptist Seminary in England from 1742 to 44, he wrote an essay on Bible prophecy. It was published in Philadelphia in 1788 as two academical exercises on subjects bearing the following titles, Millennium, Last Novelties. After careful examination of this document, Thomas Ice concludes the following about Edward's position on the rapture from his statement, quote, The distance between the first and second resurrection will be somewhat more than a thousand years. So first of all, he believes that approximately 1,305 years will transpire between resurrections. Two, he associates the first resurrection with the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4.17, occurring at least three and a half years before the start of the millennium. Three, he associates the meeting of believers with Christ in the air with John 14.2. And finally, he believes he sees believers disappearing during the time of the tribulation. Now, again, remember, there are two types of resurrection. There's the first of its type, the first resurrection, of which Jesus was the first fruits of the first resurrection right? Then the believers in the church are raptured up. And then we also have the tribulation saints or the people who come to know Jesus during the tribulation that are also going to be raptured at the end of the tribulation so that they can reign with Christ on earth. And then at the end of the thousand year reign, there is another rapture. It's not really a rapture. It's more of like a resurrection. Um, yeah, it's not a rapture. Sorry, it's a resurrection. Uh, the resurrection, the second type of resurrection that happens is the resurrection of people who died without believing in Jesus as their savior. All flesh must stand before Christ at the end. And either you're going to experience judgment before him at the Bema seat of Jesus in heaven as a, as a believer in Christ, where you will be judged based on whether you handled the, the gifts that he gave you accordingly to prosper his kingdom. Or you will face him at the white throne judgment where you will be condemned. Um, and that is that is primarily, although not entirely, but primarily a judgment for those who have not accepted Jesus as their savior. And that is where they will enter into the second death. Okay, so in conclusion, um, the author of the second paper here that we're we're discussing through. He concludes this. Critics of rapture history who have argued that belief in the pre-tribulational rapture was not embraced before John Nelson Darby in 1800s to, so he lived from 1800 to 1882. Um, they deny the clear testimony of theologians and commentators of the early periods. The clear statements of Pseudo-Ephraim, John Gill, and others now made clear that the pre-tribulational pre theory has had a long and credible history of people who understood it, taught it, and who lived their lives in light of it. George Ladd is no longer credible when he writes, quote, we can find no trace of pre-tribulationalism in the early church and no modern pre-tribulationalist who has successfully provide, proved that this particular doctrine was held by any of the church fathers or students of the word before the 19th century, unquote. This is an inappropriate comment in light of all of the historical evidence that I've provided for you today um, from the amazing 
articles written by these two men of God. Uh, the second article from James Stitzinger and that first article that we went through from Thomas Ice. So ultimately what we're looking at here is that the rapture has historical evidence. The rapture has not only historical evidence, but the pre-trib rapture has strong historical evidence. And we can also see that during the medieval era of the church, when the Catholic church and the papal dominancy was overbearing on Christians, on believers in Jesus, we can see that this particular theory was almost obliterated. It went underground. And that is something that we're actually seeing today. Now, I believe in a pre-trib rapture of the church, not because I believe in escapism, but I believe that it aligns. Not only does there is there evidence scripturally for it, and if you want, you can go and look at um, the video that I made on the pre-trib rapture previously. It's probably the first video on my channel. So the pre-trib rapture has strong evidence, both scripturally, historically, and it aligns quite well, in my opinion, with the character of God. Furthermore, in addition to this, if you haven't seen the movie Before the Wrath, I highly recommend you check it out. This shows that not only is there historical accuracy for this theory um, and scriptural evidence, strong scriptural evidence for it, but it aligns with Jewish wedding culture customs of the time from the Galilean region that Jesus was brought up in. He made allusions to it. He discussed it with his disciples. They would have known exactly the context of which he was talking about, this covenant relationship that he was making, and the fact that he was going away and coming back, not coming back as a king for the church, but coming back as a bridegroom for the church. He was coming back to take her for a wedding ceremony, for a wedding celebration. It was a time of joy. That's what Jesus is coming back for. And it's not his second coming. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you love him and you look for him and you're excited and you are passionate about him, he is coming, but he's coming as a bridegroom for you, for the church of Jesus, for the bride of Christ. He is not coming as a king yet, but he will be. And when he returns as a king, then he will establish his millennial reign on earth. And that's when business is going to get started here. And that's going to be an exciting day. But in the meantime, we have that exciting moment, that rapture moment of looking for Jesus in the clouds. And that is going to be happening imminently, as we know, as we've been taught. And we need to continue thinking of it as being an imminent situation right? It, we can't allow ourselves to grow lax. And this is unfortunately something that I have issues with um, when it comes to mid and post-trib rapture theories. Post-trib, we can throw it right out with the bathwater. I believe that it is not biblically accurate. Um, but mid-trib has you looking for the Antichrist. It has you looking for the mark of the beast to make sure that you don't take the mark of the beast. It has you looking for the Antichrist. Who is he? What are the, you know, the policies that he's going to be making? What are the moves that he's going to be making? But we are told clearly in scripture that we are supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus and that those of us who, who desire his appearing, who long for his appearing, will receive a crown of righteousness. Paul told us that. So we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the, the thing that I can comfort myself with in knowing that it's okay if I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and don't worry about the stuff that's happening that's going crazy in our world right now is the fact of knowing that he is coming soon. 
knowing that he could appear at any moment, knowing that that is where I take my joy and my comfort and my, my peace from is in the imminence of Jesus coming for his church. Um, and the final point that I want to leave you with is this. This pre-trib theory of the rapture, this pre-trib concept of the rapture, um, it, it was stamped out almost entirely in the Middle Ages. It made a roaring comeback in the 1800s, as we know with John Darby. Uh, it made a roaring comeback. And it was popular right up until probably I was still a kid. Um, a lot of people still top, talked about the rapture, talked about pre-trib theory, right? Talked about this. But it's only been in the last 20 years that people have started calling it a heresy, have started calling you a false teacher if you talk about Jesus coming soon. They've started, you know, condemning those who preach a pre-tribulation rapture. What does that remind you of? It kind of makes me think, huh, look back at what the Catholic Church was doing during the Middle Ages, during the time when they were stamping out the Waldenses and uh, the Lombards and the Albigenses. These were passionate people who were literally martyred for their faith, for their kind of their Puritan Protestant-esque faith in Jesus. The Catholic Church killed them all. And that tells me that they are onto something. They're onto something. And that tells me that the amount of warfare that we as pre-trip believers are facing right now and the amount of condemnation from the church, it says something about the spirit behind that attack. And I personally believe that the pre-trib theory is under attack from the enemy because the enemy wants our eyes off of that hope. He wants to steal our hope. He wants to kill our joy. He wants to take away our peace. And what better way to do that than to tell you, you're going to have to go through absolute hell on earth. You'll be protected partially, but you're still going to have to watch the Antichrist rise, the desecration of the temple. People are going to get their heads cut off. You're going to have to either take the mark of the beast or starve to death. That is not giving me hope. That does not give any Christian hope. But what we can hope in is the return of Jesus for the church, for the bride of Christ. That is biblical. That is historically accurate. There's archaeological evidence for the Galilean wedding traditions that Jesus alluded to when he was talking about his covenant with the church. We can find our hope in the fact that Jesus is not going to allow his bride to go through the wrath of God because he has paid the wrath for us. We are not destined for wrath, but we are destined for this beautiful relationship with Jesus. And I find joy in that. I find peace in that and comfort in that. Um, and I hope that with this, this historical evidence now, uh, that you can consider this and potentially add this to your repertoire. And for those of you who believe in a pre-trib rapture, I'm excited to meet Jesus soon. And I am looking forward to seeing you as well. Um, but you can use these, uh, these resources that I've listed again down below in the description in case you come up against somebody who is kind of trying to crush down the pre-trib rapture theory, um, which honestly, I don't believe it's really, to call it a theory sort of does it injustice. There's strong biblical evidence for it. Um, but for the sake of encouraging others as well, I, I kind of label it theory. Anyhow, that being said, folks, um, 
regardless of what our beliefs are in terms of the end times, so long as we preach the true gospel of Jesus, which is the fact that Jesus loved us, that he came, that he died for us on the cross. He was crucified. He died. He was dead for three days. He was buried, yet he didn't stay dead. He resurrected because he was the pure spotless lamb of God. He was the propitiation for our sins. And because he was pure and spotless, he resurrected. He was resurrected from the dead and glorified. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's preparing a place for us to go with him. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, and he is the one that I serve. And I hope that he is the one that you serve. And if you don't, then I encourage you to confess him, to believe that Jesus is God, to confess that he is your savior, um, and to believe on his name, and he will save you. And you can have a portion of this exciting moment in history that I believe is upon us soon. I believe that Jesus is going to be coming soon. We are living in the end time church. And I know that many people have spoken of this before, but guys, the the biblical prophetic things that have been happening lately are it's unprecedented. We hear that word being tossed around with the whole coronavirus situation. These are unprecedented times. Yes, but biblically speaking even more so. Even more so. And I am excited for this. So, um but anyhow, what I was going to say before I before I sign off here is that regardless of what you believe about pre-trib rapture, mid-trib, post-trib, premillennial, amillennial, whatever your beliefs are, as long as you preach Jesus Christ crucified and that you are only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we have no issue. We have no issue. As long as you are adhering to the true gospel preached in the four testaments, the four testaments of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, preached by Paul the Apostle, if you believe in that and that's what you're preaching, then we have no argument. I will not consider you a false teacher. We can have our disagreements about Bible prophecy, and that's totally fine. Um, as long as you are sharing the true gospel, that is what really counts in this day and this age and this time that we're going through. So that being said, folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope that you were able to learn a little something. Um and Lord willing, I will see you next time. Until then, subscribe if you like the comment, drop a like, leave a comment letting me know what you think about this um, and whether you have any thoughts on the matter, agree, disagree. Uh, in that being said, I will see you, Lord willing, in the future. Bye for now.